You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And of course, we begin with the main news for anyone living in England, I guess, probably today, the reopening of non-essential stores. Well, shops, basically, with shopping with confidence being the message from the Prime Minister. He's launching a review of the two-metre social distancing rule as he tries to encourage consumers to go out and buy. I think that it's important that we see a gradual build-up. What I want to see is safety. That's our priority. The British people have spent three months really knocking this virus down, getting it right down, huge sacrifice by the country. We can't throw it away now. But that said, industry leaders fear keeping that distancing requirement of two metres will hurt businesses, but a review is underway. Meanwhile, some secondary school students in England are back at school for the first time since lockdown measures were brought in. Those in years 10 and 12 will be able to get some time with their teachers at least ahead of their GCSE and A-level exams next year. And then it's another announcement for today. Anyone going on public transport has got to wear a face covering in England. You'll no doubt have got the emails from several travel companies. The Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, says those who don't comply could be fined. But the rail workers leaders are warning the new rules must not be seen as a green light for unnecessary use of public transport. So keep it to a minimum. Well, joining us now to discuss all of this is John Penrose, Conservative MP for Western Supermare. Uh, John, uh, good to have you with us. Uh, what, what seems slightly odd to me is that you now have to wear some sort of face covering if you're on public transport. But the rule doesn't seem to hold for shops as well. Uh, do, do, do you think that's sensible? Does that make sense? I think it's one of those things where you've got to be led by you know, what the medics and the scientists are saying about what the you know, what works and what doesn't. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, that at the start of this pandemic, um, the advice was, look, actually, um, unless you are unless you are a medic working in a high risk you know, area treating people with the virus, actually, the starting point was they didn't think that um, face covering did very much other than perhaps helping you and I not to touch our face so often. Um, which might reduce you know, might reduce transmission, and that's kind of a that's changed, hasn't it? That, they, they've they've sort of moved away from that and saying no, actually, 
on some of these, uh, in, in some enclosed areas, it does make sense to have face covering. I think that, you know, therefore, the question is, are we being consistent? And, and the simple answer is, I think we need to ask the scientists that question rather than politicians. But I think it is a legitimate question to ask. Um, but again, if the science says, look, it, it's important if you are in a, 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 a more tightly packed environment and you know, if you're on a bus or on a tube, then you tend to be closer to people um, than you might otherwise be in a shop. Um, and therefore, what, what's the balance of risks there? Because you know, I, I don't think it is... You know, people tend to move around in shops. They aren't nearly so close to their neighbours. So the balance of risks is different. Um, but I think we should be led by the science. But, but John, haven't you absolutely uh, crystallised the problem right there, being led by the science, and yet the science is saying different things. And the government, it does seem to many people, not least many Conservatives and many Conservative backbenchers, doesn't seem to be very sure-footed in where it's going with this, uh, talking about referring to the scientists, but then seeming to deliver mixed messages. I mean, this is a problem, isn't it? Well, I, I think I think that the, the difficulty is that you know, this is a new virus. I mean, this is something which didn't exist on the planet um, a matter of months ago. And so, therefore, the science, you're right, is changing. They're discovering more about how it gets transmitted, how long it survives you know, outside or indoors and all those other things. Um, and as they discover more, yes, you're right, the advice to public policy decision makers in any country around the globe is changing. So, yes, you're right, um, but it is a bit of a moving target, and it has changed, I think. But that's because we understand more today than we did yesterday. And so, um, yeah, it's, it is a little bit you know, um, in, inconsistent over time, but that's because actually it reflects what people know, and it's the best it's the best understanding at that moment. And probably in you know, three months' time, we'll know more. And other things that we look like it's exactly the right thing to do today, we may say, actually, that's only partly right. Actually, we've got to do this differently. So I, I just think we've all got to understand that the scientists don't have a perfect knowledge of this virus just yet. Um, and it's going to take some time. And we've just got to roll with whatever the latest, uh, the latest evidence shows us. But, John, you've only got to look at the death figures to see how far behind the UK is compared to many other countries. To go back to the example of, of masks in Germany, France, Italy, Spain, they're all mandatory in shops. Is the risk not here that, in a broader sense, Britain finds itself behind the curve on another major public health measure, as we saw happen with lockdowns? Well, I, I think I, you're, you're right that the, um, the you know, everyone's naturally following the, the international comparisons about how are we doing compared to other countries. And there's a whole series of questions about whether or not the, you know, the how, how comp comparable the, 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 um, the, the mortality figures are and all that sort of stuff. But I think that the, the, the point to, to, to say is that you know, an awful lot depends not just on what the science is saying, but also on what your society is like. So you know, if you have a society which is... Um, which has got lots of people from multiple generations living in the same household, then you've got a higher degree of, of risk, and therefore you may want to uh, take a different set of decisions than a country that doesn't have that. You've got a lot of people travelling on public transport into and out of work, as opposed to going by car or by foot or on, on, on bicycles. You're going to want to take different decisions there. If you've got a big international airport hub um, before the start of the lockdown, you know, those, those were places which people now realise were, were spreading... Uh, the virus before anybody knew it was really serious. So there's an awful lot of things which are different about different countries, which actually may or may not be you know, anything to do with government policy. But it is, it, it does mean that therefore you can have different government decisions for different countries or different parts of different countries, 
which are just, you know, are, are right because those countries aren't all identical. Yeah, but also, Joe, you've got a situation of, of priorities. I mean, the, the science says one thing, or it doesn't. It says various things. But economists say another thing. They say it's important to have things that help the economy, because actually that in itself will be a health measure in the end. Uh, and these are very difficult balances to work. Now, take, for example, the distancing, the one-metre, two-metre thing. That does seem to come down to a balance between what might be the most cautious move in, in health terms and what might actually get the economy going again. Where, where do you stand on that? Well, I think you're right to say that you know, poverty kills people as well. It just does it more slowly um, than, than COVID. So, so you, know, you can't just ignore the fact that, that jobs um, and, uh, and economics does matter too. It just matters more slowly and over the medium term. And you know, let's also not forget that we need to have a functioning economy so that it creates the taxes which we then use to pay for the NHS. Not much point in trying to protect the NHS if we if we um, you know, aren't able to pay for it next year as a result of what we've been doing this year. So, yes, it does matter. Um, but in the short term, and you, you clearly played a at the start of this from the Prime Minister. In the short term, you know, we've got to worry about you know, lives today, um, as well as bearing in mind that you can't just um, you know, store up problems for six months, twelve months, eighteen months down the road. So, so yes, there is a balance to be struck. Um, but ideally, what you're trying to do is to make sure that you are not inflicting too much damage on the economy while you are saving lives today so that the economy can bounce back because you know, either, otherwise you're, you're just deferring the problem rather than solving it. Well, John, can I actually push you to an answer? If you were asked now, should you go for a one-metre distance or a two-metre distance, what would you say? Um, I'd say, I, I'd go back to my point of making earlier on, which is, I'd ask the scientists first and I'd say, look, how long do I need to be next to somebody who is you know, at one metre distance compared to how long is it safe to be next to somebody at two metres distance? Chances are you can be next to someone at one metre distance for less time before you get to the level of risk, which is unacceptable, than you are if you're two metres. But how long is that? And given the level of you know, virus which we've now got in this country, which is falling, thankfully the infection rate and the death rate is falling as well, what does that up to in terms of you know, risk to you and to me as the members of our family? Um, and is it therefore safe enough yet that we can start to move to one meter? So if we can, we should. But again, I think I'm sort of putting it right in the, in the clip you played earlier on. You can only do it when those combination of different questions gets you to the point where it's safe enough. So if it is safe enough, yes, I would. Mm. But I'd be asking the scientists those questions in order to work out is it safe enough and perfect. Okay, got to ask you about Brexit as well. Of course, we've got Boris Johnson meeting with EU leaders today uh, to try and give things a bit of a push on. Uh, he's going to say that he's saying that while the UK wants a free trade agreement, it's not afraid to walk away at the end of the year without one. Are you as relaxed about the prospect of no deal at the end of the year? I don't think anybody is is relaxed about it. It's clear that a um, a proper free trade agreement, or even a modest free trade agreement, um, would be preferable. So I think you know we need to we need to go all guns blazing towards that. Um, but also, uh, what I, I get emails from, from constituents, just like everybody else, um, every other MP will as well, I'm sure. And and people you know, are, are still distrustful um, about the last two or three years of gridlock in Parliament um, and you know, the, the frustration and the anger and the division that led to last December's general election result that said, you know, let's get Brexit done. So... Um, I think yeah, we need to go great, uh, all guns blazing for whatever deal we can get. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I think people are watching and they haven't forgotten um, that we spent three years basically spinning our wheels and not getting anywhere. And I don't think they're going to be very, very patient or understanding um, if we turn around and say, I'm terribly sorry, here's another delay as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not something which I think anybody wants. I don't think it's something that anybody um, desires. Um, but I think that you know, the nation's patience has run out. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look and see what else is making news in the world of politics. We've got to start with this story. A man has been sentenced to two weeks in prison after he was photographed urinating next to the memorial to PC Keith Palmer in London during the weekend's protests. Andrew Banks, 28, pleaded guilty to outraging public decency at Westminster Magistrates Court this morning. Palmer, of course, was stabbed while on duty during the Westminster terror attack on the 22nd of March 2017. Now, the Racial Inequality Commission is, uh, well, a bit of a strange title, but the Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's setting up a cross-governmental commission to look at all aspects of that issue. He said Britain has to acknowledge the thousands who've marched peacefully under the Black Lives Matter banner. Now, writing in the Daily Telegraph today, Boris Johnson also says we need to tackle the substance of the problem, not the symbols. Mm, it's a good start, isn't it? But of course, the proof is in the pudding and we'll have to see what implementations or what suggestions come back and how they are put into force. So it's a little while yet until we can really see how successful that is. Uh, and, and then more than a million Britons, meanwhile, falling through the cracks in the government's coronavirus job support programmes. That's according to the Treasury Committee, which scrutinises the work of the Chancellor. It welcomed the scale and pace of his interventions, but said the conditions attached meant that many are still exposed to the economic hit inflicted by the pandemic. It warned that people who have recently started a new job or business, self-employed workers with annual profits above £50,000, and those who take a large part of their income through dividends, as well as freelancers, are particularly vulnerable. Although some of those in that list I just mentioned are going to be higher earners. So it's a mixed bag of people who are hit. Well, some group that has certainly been hit are people who work in hospitals. We know, of course, all about the PPE, personal protective equipment shortage, but the Guardian's found that dozens of hospitals are running short of scrubs. Now, scrubs, of course, are the things that doctors and medical staff wear when they're performing operations and what have you. It cites a survey by the Doctors' Association UK, which found that 61% of doctors said the hospitals where they worked was facing a shortage of scrubs. In recent months, many more NHS staff have been wearing scrubs to protect themselves against COVID-19. The big Increase in demand has left many hospitals unable to keep up, but also put unprecedented pressure on hospital cleaning services. Some staff even wearing pyjamas, apparently, intended for patients when scrubs have run out. That will no doubt be a huge part of any inquiry we get at the end of all of this. What happened to PPE? Why didn't we have enough? 
why are doctors wearing pyjamas when they should be wearing proper protective equipment? And then finally, Marcus Rashford, the footballer, has made an emotional plea for the government to re- reverse a decision not to provide free school meal vouchers during the summer. He writes in an open letter that the system isn't built for families like mine to succeed. The Manchester United and England forward has raised about £20 million pounds to, pr- to supply three million meals to vulnerable people while working with charity Fair Share UK during the coronavirus lockdown. Campaigners have threatened to bring legal action against the government for not extending the food voucher scheme into the summer holidays. So Rashford doing a bit of good work there. Right, but I guess what's top of Boris Johnson's agenda today is the summit. He and the chair, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, are having a summit, a virtual summit. They're not meeting in person. But there is a sense in which this is a virtual summit in another way, too, because is there anything more than just form to a discussion that doesn't seem to have any prospect of success? Neither side appears to be in the mood for compromise on any of the key issues. Well, for more, we're joined by Barry Andrews, who's Irish MEP for Fianna Foyle and the Renew Europe Party. Barry, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Um, Let me ask you first, do you see any hope for a deal coming from this meeting? Well, you'd have to be optimistic because the economic realities that are bearing down on the interlocutors today must be enormous, uh, both in the UK and the EU side. And if a no-deal Brexit was an existential threat to certainly the Irish economy before COVID is now even greater. So one would have to hope that a certain level of uh, maturity would re-enter the talks. But I think what I'm looking for today, Roger, are two things. First of all, the establishment of trust between these two leaders uh, who are essentially new to the four-year Brexit saga and uh, in, ter- in terms of their relationships with each other. And there are elements to the building of trust, which we can talk about. But also, I think they need to inject a degree of urgency. And we've already seen an acceleration of the timetable of negotiations, and that's critical too. The stakes are incredibly high. British-Irish relations in particular have been fraught over the last four years unnecessarily. Uh, so I'm, I'm really hoping against hope. The signs, however, as you say, Roger, over the last couple of weeks have been very, very negative. Uh, but now we've es- escalated uh, to leadership level, so uh, uh, cautiously optimistic, I'd say. Uh, what about the issues where we could find some common ground? There's been a lot of uh, space between the two sides on things like the level playing field, law enforcement, fishing has, has been a major one. Is there anywhere where you could see either side budging to meet the other in the middle? Well, well I think there's a couple of areas. Um, I think, first of all, it would be very welcome if Boris Johnson uh, was to uh, affirm his commitment to the political declaration which he signed in the autumn and to reaffirm his commitment to the withdrawal agreement and particularly the protocol in Northern Ireland. Because uh, since the autumn, there has been backsliding on those commitments. I mean, the withdrawal agreement is an international treaty which was passed in Westminster. Uh, The political declaration, obviously non-binding, but you'd have to expect a certain degree of uh, commitment to, to something he signed up to. It wasn't Theresa May that signed up to it. It was, it was Boris Johnson. So you'd want to see some progress on that. You mentioned a number of the issues that are dividing the, the parties, and, and they are very serious problems. Uh, and I think one of the areas I think where early progress could be made is in the area of security. Because, I mean, it's in both parties' towering common interests to make sure 
first of all, that the, the capacity for exchange of data, for exchange of information, kind of DNA databases that are so critical uh, to detection of security risks to both the EU and the UK. And would have, one would have thought that if there is any low-hanging fruit, it would be in, in that area. But, um, of course, it's the, the, the governance issues are much more important um, to, to, to solve the level playing field issues. And, and, and I think fisheries, of course, is such an important area for, uh, yeah. uh, for agreement to be found. But, but Barry, I mean, you're in, in the European Parliament. I guess you get it all you... You're virtually there, I suppose, probably at the moment. But are you hearing in the background that there's any appetite on the EU side to make major concessions? Because it seems, obviously, that there's a push for the UK to do that. But we're not really hearing particularly suggestions that there's flexibility or anything on the EU side. Well, I, I suppose it's, an, it's, a, it's sort of a, um, a cultural separation as well. It's kind of an asymmetric negotiation because obviously the British government can negotiate on its own behalf and doesn't barely have to uh, consult with Westminster. By contrast, uh, Mr. Barnier has to abide by the mandate which he received from the 27 member states. And if he goes beyond that mandate or strays in any way, uh, it creates a problem. So, for example, when he sounded a little bit more givish on the area of fisheries two or three weeks ago, he was, well, I won't say he was keelhauled, but he was brought in by the uh, relevant uh, member states who have an interest in the outcome of the fisheries negotiations and told in no uncertain terms that, that the, the, the terms of the mandate would have to be adhered to. So, And, and throughout the period ahead, uh, Mr. Barnier will have to come back to the member states and whatever concessions have been made will have to be affirmed by the member states. Uh, so what, what, what makes me pessimistic then is that that problem, the way in which the EU negotiates, makes the period of time available for an, for an agreement, you know, and you have to assume that very little will be done in August. Try and achieve all of this by October seems to be very, very remote. But I, I do think um, concessions will be made on both sides. They have to be made, but it has to be built on trust. And I think those reaffirmations that I mentioned at the beginning uh, need to be done very clearly at the outset today. So, so concessions will be made, but you see things uh, unlikely to be resolved by October. We're looking at an 11th hour deal here. Is that your, your best case scenario? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, a, a nightmare at Halloween is, is what I'm anticipating. <laughs> uh, a huge amount of uh, constructive ambiguity in some of the language. I mean, one of the big problems I foresee is that if you do have a comprehensive or what's called a mixed agreement that goes beyond mere trade, that, you know, which is an EU competence, if it comes into other areas such as security, um, then it would require the member states of the EU to ratify the agreement in their own national parliament and even in some regional parliament. So you, you would have seen the Canada agreement between the EU and Canada uh, being held up in one of the regional Dutch parliament or uh, the regional Belgian parliament. So, you know, that's another problem. Are you really going to get ratification across all 27 member states in the period between the end of October and the 31st of December? Uh, that's a real risk. So, it, it, and so, therefore, the ratification period depends on the type of agreement you get. And at this stage, you don't know where it is. So it, it really doesn't look uh, too, too rosy an, out, an outlook at the moment. And Barry, if I can push you briefly, finally, to a to a sense of what this means for Ireland, for the island of Ireland, because I mean, there are there are nightmare scenarios about potentially huge political fallout from this if there is 
a formal border on the island of Ireland and what pressures that brings about. Yes, well, that, that's exactly it. So the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol make it very clear that there have to be checks on the Irish Sea. Now, if that's resiled from by the UK government and there is no deal and no implementation of the withdrawal agreement at the end of the year, then it's reasonable to expect that the European Commission will look for a way to protect the single market at its external borders. And that means the island of Ireland. And that is an unthinkable and catastrophic outcome. Uh, that we, we have to use all our best endeavours to avoid. Yeah. On the economic side, that's the political side. On the economic side, then, I mean, Ireland exports 40% of its agricultural produce to the UK, and, you know, sterling is tanking at the moment, right. making it hard. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.